Following our suggested scenario, the singer of the Trinklied movement reappears in this follow-up drinking song after taking up the wine glass, as he says, and apparently drinking himself into a dreamlike stupor. During his wine-induced sleep, he dreamt of the loneliness of old age and the delights of youth and beauty long gone. Now he awakens from dreaming that he confesses often accompanies his sleep after overindulgence in drink. He seeks intoxication to escape the memory of that dreadful graveyard scene envisioned in the Trinklied movement. He conjured up dream worlds overflowing with ardor and passion. Upon waking, his first words, life is but a dream, confirms as much. Life is no more real to him when he is awake than when he is asleep. For our Trunkina is what Nietzsche would call a passive nihilist as opposed to an active nihilist. He permits his nihilistic attitude toward life to completely drain him of both energy and the will to overcome his negativism. Yet nature tries to intervene. Sweet sounds of a bird release him from his dream state. He asks the little creature if spring has arrived, for he was probably dreaming of it when he awoke. Spring, as a symbol of regeneration, and therefore of the eternal return, is a major component of the dramatic situation in Das Lied. Each of the preceding movements relate in one way or another to spring and its blossoming forth of beauty, whether delighting in its joys or sorrowed by its loss. Might these three dreamlike song movements that preceded the Trunkina movement be a subconscious response to the grotesque graveyard scene presented in the first drinking song? For implicitly, thoughts of that terrifying scene haunt the three movements that follow the Trinklied. Might the Trinklied's nihilistic philosophy have conjured up the lonely sentiments expressed in the Herbst movement by a soul longing to make an end to existence so threatened? Might such a desolate soul not find a little happiness and refreshment in the recollection of lost innocence and the joys of beauty? Sinking deeper into his slumbers, the Trunkina dreams of the marvels of youth and beauty that sustain life and are represented by the movements named for them. But as the intoxicated one says here, if life is but a dream, why then is there toil and misery? This rhetorical question implies a meaningless existence. So the singer abandons himself to drink, to avoid re-experiencing the dreadful thought of death as utter oblivion. Yet he has asked a profound question too often glossed over in discussions of this movement. Why do we sweat and strain with such vigor and tolerate so much suffering and torment without hope of lasting relief in our worldly existence? To what end is this incessant toil and striving that causes so much pain and suffering? Mahler asked essentially the same questions in his programs for the Second Symphony. He answered them in the Second's last two movements with a simple act of faith in otherworldly redemption. In part one of the Eighth Symphony, he provided a different answer. We bear our suffering in order to create. For having been created in the image of God, we find our greatest joys and our eternity in the unending pursuit of the divine attribute of creativity. Yet struggle and torment that often accompany the creative act make us wonder if it is all worthwhile. 
And so, like the singer of both drinking songs, we either fly into a rage over the apparent meaninglessness of life, give in to the nihilistic pleasure-seeking that diverts our attention and our energies away from creative effort, or find intoxicants to numb our sense and banish thoughts of mortality and life's presumed worthlessness. But a nihilistic approach to life is usually a self-fulfilling prophecy. Nietzsche was also tormented by the same quandary and sought meaning and value in life through the myth of the eternal return. He thought that if we could live our lives in such a way as to desire that the same life be repeated eternally, all the good and the bad returning over and over again without variation, then we would truly love life and thereby overcome our fears of death and the dread of oblivion. Nietzsche called this principle amor fati, the love of fate. Only one who rises above his fears and his weaknesses and sees life as a great adventure, urged on by inner impulses, what Nietzsche called the will to power, that he learns to put to good use, can achieve a state of complete and resolute devotion to life. Our Trunkina has not yet mastered his doubts and fears. He still questions the value and meaning of life in all too familiar, cynical terms. He has not yet overcome the torments of the vision that terrified him to the core of his being in the first movement. His only remedy, however hapless, is to become intoxicated with life's physical pleasures so as to blot out this dreadful vision and sing, as he put it, until the moon shines out in the dark heavens, when, as the singer also puts it, he can sing no more, implying the loss of his creative powers resulting from persistent thoughts of doom. He goes back to sleep, perchance to dream of the beauties of life that he can only experience vicariously in dream fantasy. He awaits death as erkvickung, relief, as his dream voice so aptly but pitifully expressed it in the Herbst movement. Yet the very questions he asks are a sign of his longing for answers that might restore his belief in life. The Trunkina song movement is framed by two questions, the first of which asks whether spring has arrived. Because spring is a symbol for rebirth and regeneration, the underlying import of this question is whether there has yet come into human life a renewal of value and meaning, the regeneration or rebirth of life that spring symbolizes. If spring means renewal, then it also relates to the eternal return, the ultimate concept of the life cycle. In each of the first five songs, there is some reference, explicit or implicit, to the blossoming forth of flowers of spring, which represents the most creative period of Earth's time cycle. The second question is even more telling, especially because it is more personal. What have I to do with spring? The singer asks. This seemingly skeptical rejection of the significance of spring has usually been interpreted as merely rhetorical. Even the singer responds to it in the last line by saying that he would rather stay in a drunken stupor than think about it anymore. Yet one wonders if this too readily overlooked query has more significance than may be obvious. What if by his asking this question, our drunkard nihilist is really expressing a profound need to overcome his nihilism? What if he really needs to answer the question in order to go on living?
to borrow a phrase from Mahler's program for the Second Symphony. Yet the subtext of that symphony, written more than ten years before Das Lied, asks the same questions about life and death implied in Das Lied. Why do we live? What is the meaning of it all? How can we justify life in the face of certain death? Mahler asks these questions in one form or another in most of his symphonies. Underlying the second question is yet another telling issue. What does the singer mean by the word spring when he asks, what have I to do with spring? As mentioned above, spring is easily identified with the philosophy of the eternal return, treated metaphorically throughout Das Lied. But does its beauty and its recurrence make them truly symbolic of life's value? The texts of each poem in Das Lied refers in one form or another to spring, or the flowers that symbolize it. Spring has blossoming forth. It is in this ever-resurgent blossoming forth that the creative act of reproduction functions as a symbol of both creativity and the eternal return. So what does the creative life have to do with the Tronchina? He has been trying to obliterate his fears by becoming intoxicated with the beauties and joys of life, because his fear of death makes life unbearable. But he must answer this last question if he is ever to find fulfillment and an end of his inner torment. In Der Abschied, he finds that answer in another dream vision, a prophetic one in which an oracle-like figure, possibly the eternal feminine of the Eighth Symphony, reveals the true meaning of human life. The text of Trunkina contains six strophes organized in regular strophic form within an ABA pattern. After the unsteady, though carefree, disposition of the first two strophes, strophe three seems more confident, yet also more relaxed. Set in a major key and replete with bird song trills and other ornamental figuration, the fourth strophe continues the developmental process begun earlier, evoking thoughts of spring. Frequent key changes and tonal juxtapositions create an imbalance that parallels the unsteadiness of both the vocal line and the singer's drunken state. The use of variations technique complements the Schoenheit movement. In strophe five, the protagonist dismisses spring as the music wanders into foreign keys that seem to reawaken the feeling of dread, possibly elicited by images of the graveyard scene in the Trinklied. By this time, the horror of that vision has been so diluted by drink that only a few measures darken the otherwise carefree atmosphere before the singer abandons himself once again to drink. Conflict has been pushed aside by an acceptance of oblivion in the bottle rather than a willingness to face death without demeaning life. The closing coda mirrors that of the Trunkina in its energy, though not in its violence. Whatever is left of the force of will that might make life blossom forth in spring was generated by the energetic spirit expressed in youth and beauty and not by the raging torrents of active nihilism in the Trinklied movement, to which the end of the Trunkina movement serves as an antithesis. Dreams of life's joys alone will not suffice to affirm life and comprehend its true worth. But at least such dreams can provide an impetus to reconsideration, even in the very act of abject rejection and abandonment. A three-bar introduction contains several musical elements found in both the Jugend and Schoenheit movements, 
indicating that the singer has been dreaming of the scenes evoked and tales told in these movements. Repeating tones are ornamented with grace notes that begin truncina and also appear in the first measure of Schoenheit. But now they turn around the notes they support rather than elaborate upon them, thus evoking the image of the singer's giddy stupor. In the second measure, a twice-repeated falling second with the first note of each two-note couplet trilled recalls a similar motive that enhanced the orchestral main theme of the Schoenheit movement. While these flippant musical figures remind us of the previous two song movements, horns play a gay little tattoo in a Wunderhorn-esque manner. This free-spirited horn call is all that is left of the raging horn signal that opened the Trinklied movement. It now sounds innocent and carefree rather than wild and fierce. Just when the relatively static music of the first two bars becomes more active in searching for a melodic line, the tenor enters with a long arching phrase that forms the first vocal subject. The tonality abruptly shifts from A major to the unrelated key of B flat major. With strong emphasis on the first two beats, the melody characterizing the Trunkina's unsteady awakening begins. He quickly shakes himself free of his dream state as winds continue to develop the light-hearted music that they began before the singer entered. After mustering enough strength to continue, the singer follows his opening line with a descending dotted rhythmic phrase that contains the symphony's motto notes and ends with an unexpected though exuberant upward leap of a seventh, which ushers in another key switch, this time to F major, for the second theme. This new theme, played by first violins, begins with a three-note cell on a dotted rhythm that first falls by a minor second, hinting at the motive of woe, yet without a trace of its tragic character, and then by a sixth, a seventh in the next measure. Its opening three-note grouping, repeated a step higher, recalls the second theme from the first movement of the seventh symphony. The theme continues with a strongly accented descending scale that recalls the Trinklied movement and its Dunkel refrain. It is almost a direct quote of the common measure shared by the principal themes of the Sixth Symphony's first movement. Pentatonic elements in the second theme also derive from the Trinklied movement. The singer echoes this descending phrase, ending with a super-octave upward leap. The brief first strophe concludes with a variant of the tenor's opening line, beginning with three notes that rise stepwise after the first beat and ending with an inverted version of the three-note dotted rhythm that first falls and then rises triumphantly to a high A. This last line of strophe one brings back both the introductory music and the principal key. The second line of strophe one also ended with a high A on the word flog, repeated here on the rhyming word tog,
after the introduction returns for two bars, emphasizing the singer's frivolity, strophe two begins with a variation of the same phrase that began strophe one. Once again, the singer holds on to the first few rising notes of his arching melody and then gaily asserts himself in tempo for the remainder of the first line of the text, now sung on a downward turn figure. A major gives way to F major after only four bars, at which point the B section begins. An oboe opens this middle section with a new theme derived from the accompaniment to the beginning of strophe one. Its light, bouncy quality is emphasized by staccato eighths in horns on double-noted cells. The theme ends with a variant of the three-note falling dotted rhythm so prominent in strophe one. Yet once again, the entrance of the tenor is delayed for nearly two bars and causes a sudden shift in tonality, this time in reverse, bringing back A major instead of diverting from it. The words, weil kel und selefol, are sung to the same falling dotted rhythm followed by leaps of a seventh that was used for the words Varum den Mühe und Plag in strophe one. This carefree bit of frippery is repeated in the vocal line throughout the movement and at the end of each strophe, paralleling the ritornell treatment of the Dunkel phrase in the Trinklied movement. As after the first strophe, a brief orchestral interlude follows the first line of the second strophe, with its precursory allusions to spring, during which the violins develop the second theme. When the tenor returns to conclude this strophe, he sings a variation of the vocal line used for the first strophe, ending again on a high A that causes the key to swing back to A major. As the tempo slows down into a cadence, which both closes the second strophe and begins the reprise of the introduction, First violins play the motive of the devil's dance. Not well audible in our example, I'm afraid. Let's listen from the first return of the introduction through the second strophe that ends with another return of the introduction. With this shift back to A major, the movement's principal tonality, the introduction returns, but its lively tempo soon abates, and the music becomes calmer when the opening theme is transferred from winds to strings. A solo violin extends the theme with falling sixteenths that recall a prominent thematic element in the finale of the Sixth Symphony. Again the key changes when the singer enters to begin strophe three, this time to an unexpectedly somber F major. Two motives are hidden in the orchestra in a single measure that begins when the tenor ends the first line of this strophe, the devil's dance in the bassoons and lower strings, and the der Tages churn motive played in dotted rhythms as a variation of the second theme. On the singer's cry of horsch, the introduction returns briefly with the opening horn call played on an oboe to a wayward variation of the first vocal phrase 
The tenor sings of a bird perched in a tree as the tonality modulates in the direction of the home key. Violins softly rhapsodize on the second theme, making it sound like a spring song. They add a turn figure and invert the falling scalar phrase from the trinklead movement, forcing it to rise and ending as they began on the three-note dotted rhythmic cell that begins the second theme. The tempo continues to slacken as if the singer were drifting back into his intoxicated dream state. Orchestral melodies are almost always at variance with the fragmentary vocal line. Another momentary excursion into the minor mode occurs when the singer meditates upon the significant words Ich frage ihn, ob schon Fehrling sei. His inner spirit will repeat this mysterious chromatic phrase in the finale. As with each of the strophes, this one concludes with a variation of the descending phrase that leaps to a high A, now on the word Traum, dream. But this time it is sung very softly, as if the singer's mind wandered off into comforting thoughts of springtime pleasures. It is at such times that the first line of this poem becomes tellingly significant. Is life but a dream after all? The next excerpt begins from the return of the introduction through the third strophe. Suddenly the singer awakens from his momentary daydream as the introduction returns, now played softly for two bars to usher in strophe four. Clarinets play a variant of the second theme's opening spring motif. As the solo violin cheerily plays the first theme, the tenor begins the fourth strophe with another variation of the music to which he sang the first line of the poem. Its last two notes are broken up for the Yasagar response of the bird to his query about the arrival of spring. Of course, the Trunkina is curious about the coming of rejuvenating spring after having dreamt of it in his intoxicant-induced sleep. A solo violin flutters above the singer, imitating the twittering bird. With a joyous yet soft cry of Der Lenz, the spring, on an octave leap into the bar that parallels the high A with which ends each of the previous verses, this time in A-flat, spring seems to arrive, just as miraculously, overnight, as it did in Act One of Die Valkyrie. After the tonality changes again, this time to D-flat major, the tenor joyously sings the spring motive, the falling dotted rhythm that begins the second theme. He sings this motive to the words, Der Lenst ist da, the spring is here. This jubilant acknowledgement that spring has indeed arrived 
is momentarily tainted by dark and foreboding thoughts, unexpressed in the text, but indicated in a sudden shift to the minor mode. Here the vocal line becomes laden with sinister chromatics on the words auf tischdem schauen lauscht ich auf. With deepest regard I listen. A sense of foreboding darkens the atmosphere. At such a wondrous moment of the reawakening of spring, could the terrible visions of the graveyard scene return and dispel the singer's happiness with dreadful thoughts of death and oblivion? To our relief, the singer quickly recovers. He tells of the bird's song to the joyful sounds of the spring motive and a musical imitation of the little creature's laughter, repeated twice for emphasis. The strophe ends with the same upward octave leap to high A-flat with which the strophe began. This time it is sung softly to the words unlocked. The twittering bird sounds of the introduction return in woodwinds, overflowing with the joy of life. Here is the fourth strophe. The regenerative spring theme reappears in the voice, doubled by violins, as strophe five begins. Bird sounds during the preceding three measures serve as both accompaniment to the close of strophe four and as an introduction to the next strophe. The main allegro tempo recommences with the reprise of the A section. First violins again double the vocal line to emphasize the singer's exuberance. Although the key switches to a bright and jubilant C major, it suddenly and mysteriously wanders off into B-flat, as the tenor recalls, without saying so, the fantastic vision that drove the Trinklied movement to its horrific climax. He says he will drink bis der Mond erglänzt am schwarzen firmament until the moon shines out in the dark heavens, thus referring to the moon that glowered over the graveyard seen in the first movement and was also referred to in the middle movements. Notice, too, that the rising figure with which he begins the last three words of the line sounds almost as threatening as the toast he made after that graveyard nightmare vision. It's nimmt den Wein. Yet the related vocal phrase said here is exactly the same as was sung to the words den ganzen Liebentag at the end of the first strophe. Strophe five concludes on the high A that ended the earlier strophes and brings with it a return to the joyful abandon of the opening music, as well as the principal key of A major. How refreshingly cheerful the orchestral introduction now sounds, embellished by rising and falling harp glissandos, 
especially after a near relapse into the dark side of the Trinklied. The association of this music with the opening of the Schoenheit movement becomes even more obvious here. Both sections evoke the beauties of spring to dispel thoughts of doom. The season of renewal and return is the antidote for the wintry darkness of the Trinklied's hallucinatory graveyard vision. Let's listen to the fifth strophe. In just two measures, the key changes to F major, which serves as the tonality for most of the final strophe. An abbreviated reprise of the A section begins with the same vocal phrase with which the first strophe began, in mid-measure rather than at the bar line, as before. It is accompanied by the woodwind theme that entered a measure later during the first A section, now played by the violins. After the first theme continues for a few measures, the spring theme returns, first in the violins and then in the voice. Its original vigor and sense of abandon seem to be reinforced by the bird's announcement of spring's arrival. The wind accompaniment is much livelier than when the spring theme was first heard. A variant of the three-note dotted rhythm of the spring motive in first violins hints at the Der Tageschirn figure, a symbol for the joy of living, to which the singer succumbs with delight. When he questions the meaning of spring, its motive is inverted, and when he responds that he would rather intoxicate himself with life, he inverts the phrase on which he conjured up dark thoughts with the words schwarz and firmament. This is a sure sign that he wants no more of that depressing thought. As the singer closes the final strophe on a high A, as he had the previous strophes, the opening allegro tempo returns in the tonic key for a brief coda on the music of the introduction. Now it is more fully orchestrated and decorated with whirling 30 seconds depicting the drunken stupor that will inevitably follow the singer's final resolve. This lively, light-hearted coda is the perfect foil for the raging ferocity that ended the first drinking song. We'll begin the last excerpt with the brief introduction to the final strophe. Das Frühling. 